Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. Well, Happy New Year. Almost. We're very glad to have Bill here. And he's glad to be here. <laughs> and it's, it's so great to have um, us all together again as we are celebrating and enjoying the the week that's kind of different from all the other weeks in the uh, year. I don't know what it was like for you. If you um, used to be at work or at work still, they don't even consider this week here really as holidays. They just, um, our workplace gave it to us generously and didn't count it as our holidays. So that was always kind of nice. So I hope that it's been a great week for you. And um, as we embark on New Year's, what do we do on New Year's? We make resolutions. <laughs> Della, we all make resolutions. <laughs> Whether or not we keep them, that's iffy. For sure, we don't let anybody know what our resolutions are because we don't want to be held to them. Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for um, bringing us together and keeping us throughout this past year. And Lord, we just know that no matter what our circumstances are, whether they're um, joyful ones or ones of sorrow, that through all of that, you are always with us and you are always holding us in the palm of your hand. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, that you would, again, speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit and that we might um, really be a changed people, that we will be different than the world around us because of what you are doing in us. So we would just ask that you would um, be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, who wants to volunteer what their new resolutions are? (laughs) Okay, we can't all talk at one time. (laughs) So I have some resolutions. One of them is to unpack some boxes from when we moved into the house, (laughs) which was about 25 years ago. (laughs) And so I thought, well, maybe this is the year that I'll get those unpacked. Maybe. And I'm committing now, because now I've actually verbalized it after 25 years. Or maybe um, another one that I thought of was um, the speed reading course that I'm taking. Uh, I don't know if uh, you guys are always feeling like, I ought to read more. And part of the problem is, at least for me, is I always feel like I read very slowly. And I have to think about everything I'm reading and, you know, kind of get it all in there. And you get this far and you realize you weren't paying attention and you've got to go back and you've got to read it again. And um, if you're like me, I read, like I'm a very, one of, one of my great virtues is I know how to sleep. <laughs> And uh, when I pick up a book at night to read before I fall asleep, I am very lucky to get through the first paragraph before I'm out. 
So it takes a long time to read a book. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll take a speed reading course. Maybe I can read a whole page before I fall asleep. So you can go online and get this free speed reading thing. So I went online and got it. And you click as it, it highlights phrases. And you click your mouse as you're going through it. And supposedly, you know, you um, click it faster and faster. So I went from 230 words a minute up to 450 words a minute, which I thought was amazing. But the way you click your mouse, it can tell if you're comprehending or not. So my comprehension was zero. <laughs> so my goal is to get that up to at least 5%. <laughs> So we're embarking on a new series, and um, we're starting it, we're, we're moving now from Christmas to Easter, though I, I very much don't like that word Easter, because it's from the goddess Ishtar, who is the goddess of sex and fertility, and it celebrates, um, you know, birth and stuff in the, in the springtime. So I don't really like that name. I prefer to call it Resurrection Sunday. So, um, you know, you kind of got to go with the culture anyway a little bit. So we might call it Easter, but really what we mean is Resurrection Sunday. So we're moving from uh, the time of the celebration of Jesus' birth, which probably wasn't December 25th, but that's when we celebrate it, through to the Resurrection Sunday, which historically it was then. And so um, as we move through, it's always good to look at the life of Christ. And it's good for us every uh, year to spend some time in the Gospels just going back through things that are very familiar to us. And so we're on familiar territory as we go through the Gospels, but it's the Spirit of God, it's the Word of God. And so the Word of God is always fresh. It's the living Word. And so it always comes to us again in a fresh way. And how the Lord does that, I don't know. But by His supernatural power through the Holy Spirit, He again makes us to kind of live it again newly. And so that's, you know, my prayer for you as we move through this series from now to um, Resurrection Sunday, is that we will be once again refreshing our minds in, um, in what we're doing. So this here is a picture of, anybody know that scene in the Gospels? What would that be? Jesus as a boy in the temple. Okay, so that's Jesus as a boy in the temple, and that's what I'm going to be talking about. Um, it may seem like a strange New Year's kind of message, but I want us to think about it as um, a new thing was happening in Israel, and a new thing is happening for us as well. And to be thinking about this year ahead as we're thinking about you know, things that are behind us, some good, some bad, is sort of like a fresh start. And for Israel, this for sure was a fresh start. This whole um, time from when Jesus was born until his resurrection and um, even Pentecost after when the Holy Spirit came introduced a whole new time for not just Israel, but for the world. And so we're brought into it as Gentiles into this history that um, is factual 
and actually happened and um, is and changed everything. So I called this the eternal one enters into the temporal. So he who was eternal, his beginning was not Christmas Day. That was not the beginning of Jesus. He existed from forever. He is eternal in his beginning, and he is eternal to the end. He is the eternal one, and eternity is defined by who God is. Like that is what is eternal from beginning to end, the only one and the only um, thing. There's nothing else that's eternal like him. And so here is the eternal who, um, whatever in his creative time frame, decided to create our world and now has decided to come into our world. And it says from the foundation, he had determined that he would come into the world. So here's the timing when he does come into the world. So we have looked at um, that time in the past when, uh, you know, for the past days now, so Jesus is 12 years old in this uh, photograph that was taken of him back then. And uh, he was 12 years old there. And um, so there's some stuff that's happened, but it's nothing much is recorded here in the Word except for some stuff right at the beginning. And I just want to fill in a few things. We've, we've been through um, the Christmas story over these past weeks and, and probably in your own homes and in your own readings. But um, there's a couple of things, uh, background about Jesus' birth that we tend not to really highlight when we're talking about the Christmas story. We talk about, you know, the manger scene. We talk about the angels and their proclamation. We talk about the magi who came probably a few years later. We talk about um, a lot of things that happened and the anxious waiting. We talk about maybe even John and um, coming with Zacharias and Elizabeth when they were elderly. But then once we get Jesus born, we kind of don't talk about it again, and we miss a few things. And one of the things that they would have done, um, because um, I just want to talk about Mary and Joseph for a few minutes and what amazing people they must have been. When you think about what Mary was told and her acceptance of what the angel told her, you're going to have the Christ child. And up until then, it hadn't really registered with them. Like, it's so easy for us to look back in the Old Testament and say, ah, here is the prophecy that this would happen. But for them who are in it, it's like me saying to you exactly how is it going to be when the Lord returns. We all know the Lord's returning, but exactly how? Well, we'll get all these different viewpoints even knowing the scripture, we don't know exactly. So prophecy often isn't really understood very well until it happens. And then you go, ah, I see the prophecy is so very exact, like even to naming kings and naming time frames and everything else. So it's not sort of this, uh, it's not like a horoscope that's kind of, you can make it say anything you want. It's not like that. But you can see how carefully and how completely God fulfills all prophecy. And so the prophecies of, of Jesus' coming weren't really clearly understood because they were mixed up with the prophecies of what we know now as his second coming. So they didn't quite get that the, the first coming in the same way as, um, you know, separate from his second coming. Most of the prophecies about Jesus coming in the Old Testament are actually about his second coming, not about his first coming. So it's understandable that they didn't quite get it. And so when Mary was told that you're going to have a child 
And she's thinking, well, I've never known a man, so how can this be? And um, the, Holy, uh, the angel says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And so the Father God is Jesus' father, not Joseph. Joseph is his adoptive father. And so um, Mary um, accepted that, and Joseph, of course, when he found out that she was pregnant, what could he assume but that there's some guy involved in the picture? And the angel, it took an angel to appear to Joseph for him to be able to be convinced, and he was convinced, and he too believed. So these are like huge things that they believed, and it makes me wonder, what has God said to us that we're kind of askance about? Well, you know, I don't think so, I don't really believe that. Or we kind of pick and choose what we want to believe, rather than just believing God for even those most amazing things. And so Mary and Joseph um, really were set apart from so many others that had doubts. Like we see it with Zacharias when he was told that he's going to have a son. He found it, you know, he he didn't really believe that. And so the consequence was the angel said, you're not going to be able to speak. Um, You know, you're going to be struck dumb. And so uh, for those around them, things were difficult to believe. And I think it's no different today. And what really sets us apart as true believers, are those who really, truly believe God even for the most astounding things. And so, um, you know, the question to always ask ourselves is, where do I stand on that continuum? Am I like one who really is like Mary and Joseph, or am I more like a Zacharias who is a believer, but, you know, not the astounding things? So... um, Mary and Joseph already have set themselves apart as being these um, really, truly believing, godly, um, wanting to follow God in all of his ways kind of people. And so they are specially chosen by God to parent the boy Jesus. Now for us to think about this eternal one who has humbled himself, it tells us in Philippians 2, um, becoming man and submitting to the tutelage of his parents, whom he would have created, and to be brought up and to be taught by others when he himself is the one who wrote the word. And now he's learning the word because he he didn't just humble himself to sit there and, and thinking to himself, well, I know everything. Like he had to learn, like all of us as little children, he had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to stand and walk. And um, he had to learn. And for six years, he would have been under Mary's tutelage. And then after that, in the next years, he would have been under Joseph's tutelage. So Mary would have taught him a lot of the the foundational core scriptures. And then um, he would have, when he's six, he enters into the synagogue teaching, which is the local church, so to speak, the local place where they taught the word. And he would have learned there and from Joseph. And he also would have learned his trade from Joseph, which was a carpenter. And so that's kind of what the, the early life of Jesus would have been like. But Mary and Joseph were so careful to follow all of the steps of the law. Because remember, Jesus is born into this Jewish home, and God set up the, the law, the Torah, and he said, this is how it's going to be. So all the stuff that you kind of want to skim over when you're reading through Leviticus is very important that that is followed if you're in a Jewish family. 
And so they had a lot of things that they had to be careful were actually done. Now, the Pharisees, we know, added on a lot of additional things that were man-made laws. But still, there is the law that God gave them that needed to be followed. And that's a lot more than the Ten Commandments. It's all um, how they were to do the sacrifices, um, all the things about their civil law, how they treated one another, and so on and so forth. But particularly, there were some things that were out of Jesus' control. And so it was important that Mary and Joseph fulfill those aspects of the law. First one is on the eighth day after Jesus is born. He's eight days old. He's not telling his parents what to do, other than, like any baby, having the same baby needs. But other than that, he's not saying, okay, well, it's the eighth day. We got to get to the, you know, we got to get the circumcision done. So on the eighth day was the circumcision, and right before the circumcision is the naming of the child. And of course, they named the child Jesus because the angel told them to said you are to name him Jesus which means in the like that's Hebrew it means he saves and so he's even from birth called really essentially the savior and so um, they were to name him Jesus and then they circumcised him on the eighth day and on the 33rd day is what um, we call the days of Mary's purification so there was in the law the number of days that the mother who just gave birth um, had to wait in order for her days of purification to be complete. And then she was to go to the temple and, um, you know, with her husband, of course, and, and the little one. So with the firstborn male, Jesus is the firstborn male for Mary. She had other children afterwards, so Jesus is her firstborn male. And so the Lord, it says in the law, owns the firstborn. The firstborn belongs to the Lord, and there's um, particular terminology that's used with that um, that, you know, we learn if, if you were in the Joshua study, you would have learned it under the ban. So that belongs to the Lord. And so um, the Lord doesn't take that child. He has mercy. And in his mercy, he provides a substitute for taking the child away from the home. Now, if you know the story of Hannah, she actually took Samuel, her firstborn son, and gave him into the temple service. Um, and he was raised by Eli. But in, um, for Mary and Joseph, they took a sacrifice, a, an animal sacrifice, as a substitute because God in his mercy allows for a substitute to be given, although he prescribes what the substitute is. So it's a calf, it's a, a sheep, it's you know all these different things. But if you were a poor family who couldn't afford that, then the Lord allowed for two doves or two turtle doves we call them in in our translation so two birds were allowed and they were these specific birds and so mary and joseph by offering that indicates to us they're a poor family they don't have that's how we know that they didn't have a lot of money because they took that as a sacrifice and that was given on mary's behalf as her um, substitute for being able to keep her firstborn knowing that the lord owns that firstborn. And so that's why they would have done that. So Mary and Joseph do this, and um, they take that. I just find all these things, these parallels so amazing, because he who is our sacrifice 
Um, even he had to fulfill all these things of the law, and it was out of his control. That wasn't something he could control. It was important for Mary and Joseph to do this. And I think it underlines for all of us how important it is that parents do the right thing for their children in raising them in the ways of the Lord. That it's something they can't do for themselves when they're little. So, so that onus is actually on the parents to do that. And I know that there's this big movement of, you know, well, we won't teach the kids anything about faith issues and we'll let them figure it out. When they get older, they can figure it out and make their own choices. That isn't what God says. He says that actually the responsibility is on all of us as parents to teach our children in the ways of the Lord. And, you know, when they are old, it's a, it's a principle. They won't depart from it. It's not a promise. It's a principle so that they will um, remain in the faith. But um, if they don't, I mean, they have their choice as well. That's, that's, you know, a separate thing. But we have and we will be held responsible for raising our children in the ways of the Lord. And so Mary and Joseph did that for Jesus, and they made sure that they did everything correctly. And so part of that was... Um, uh, that they taught him the word of God. And as I mentioned, Mary would have done that. Now, the girls never went to the synagogue. So what would typically happen is uh, the men who did go to the synagogue, if it was a good family, and, and hopefully most of them were, would come home and teach um, the women folk in their family. And actually, the young boys would teach their sisters the, the, the law. And so the girls would also learn the law. Part of the synagogue school was that they would memorize the Torah. Now, how many of us have memorized right from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy word for word? I mean, maybe John has, but I don't think any of the rest of us have. <laughs> but um, our John here, who is very versed in, yes, I did mean you. <laughs> So, um, like, wow, that's a lot to memorize. But that's what they would do in the synagogue is they would memorize this and they, they would be learning as well and having understanding of it. And so it was um, the roles of the parents. Are really, I think of it as threefold. One is to teach the word of God. And there's nothing that substitutes for the word of God. There's no philosophy, there's no um, literature, there is nothing that substitutes for the Word of God. In the old days, they didn't have all the different books that we have available to them, so most kids learned how to read through having a Bible in their home, and that's what they would read all the time, and um, they would learn it. So the Word of God, the other is the testimony of one's life. So as parents, to have that testimony of a godly life, of fulfilling what God has called us to do and to live the Christian life in our case and the Jewish life in their case. And so um, that's, that would be the second thing. And then the third thing is to really understand the child and to teach the child insights into themselves. And for that, to, you know how a child will go through an experience and they'll think, um, they think all kinds of things because in their childlike way they don't have 
the experience of life to kind of put it into a context. And one of the things parents do for their little children is put life into its context. So when they fall down and they bump themselves, we don't say, oh, well, <laughs> it's over. You're going to cry for the rest of your life now. You know, we put it into context for them. And we say, oh, you know, you'll be better. And, you know, gradually all these things, we keep putting life into context for them by giving them a window into the bigger picture of the world and where they fit and, you know, where their circumstances kind of fit in it. So those are some of the things that... Um, Mary and Joseph would have done for Jesus as he grew up. And so we move to Luke chapter 2, and um, I'm just going to read the first two verses there in our reading today, verses 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, so this is Mary and Joseph, and they did everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child, meaning Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And so um, we see that he continued to grow in, um, well, strong, becoming strong, so that means, you know, physically growing up, but also um, increasing in wisdom. And wisdom, in case we forget, is knowing the truth, like God's truth, but applying it, putting it into action. And so wisdom is when we actually do the truth. It's not just knowing the truth, but actually walking it out. And so um, Jesus had to grow in that. Imagine he who is wisdom had to learn these things. And the grace of God or the favor of God was upon him. And so uh, um we just see this amazing um, life of Jesus. But Luke is the only one who has this next part. The other Gospels, it's not in there. And so one has to wonder why. So think about that verse 40 that I just read, and then it's going to give some more detail. And then watch for it. It's going to repeat that. And there's a reason why the Scriptures do that. There's a reason why Luke does that. Starting at verse 41, where I just left off. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and, they, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
And so we see verse 40 is essentially repeated in verse 52. And those two are like parentheses around the whole thing, encapsulating this whole episode. And what it's supposed to be showing us is that it's not that this is the only thing that happened in Jesus' you know, life until he went into public ministry, but it's to show us this is what he was like. This is the kind of personality he had. This was the kind of relationship he had with his parents. And this was how he was growing up in the Lord. And so he wasn't just, you know, a baby and then all of a sudden a 30-year-old man and, you know, what happened in between. Right here, and we often wonder, you know, well, what about all the other years that aren't recorded here? Well, here it is right here. That's telling us what it was like. Did he have daily life? Yes, he did. He had chores, just like we all have. He had to, you know, get up in the morning and, and get going. He had to help out in the house when he was little and then in the shop as he grew older and then take on the trade and had to work for a living in those years. So all those things were part of, of his life. Um, and so it's encapsulated there for us to understand that um, he knew the truth, he applied the truth, he continued in the truth, and the favor of God was always on him. And so that was really his growing up years. And um, I think about us. So, you know, that was Jesus' growing up years. And I think of us as still in our growing up years. Life is our growing up years. Like the end of life... That's when we move into eternity, and that's actually when we drop off all of our you know, bad behaviors that we may have had or um, inconsistencies or lack of understanding. And when we see Jesus face-to-face, that's when we're really going to be mature. In the meantime, all of us, every single one of us, not just the little children, but all of us that are sitting here in this room, who are living and breathing, are in the maturing process. We're all growing in Christ. It never stops until we see him face to face. And so we are growing in Christ, all of us. And so we can say, well, what was Jesus doing in his growing years? He was learning the truth. That's a continual process. He was applying the truth, which is what wisdom is. So we are all hopefully growing in wisdom. And he was walking, regardless of the circumstances, he was walking in that truth. So regardless of our circumstances, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes really bad, that we are learning the truth, applying the truth, walking it out, and living with the favor of God upon us because his grace is upon us. His favor is upon us. And so um, it's really quite similar. Now, they were um, in this story, they went to Jerusalem, it says every year at the Feast of the Passover, but um, just so that we don't miss this, they would have gone to all three feasts. It was required of all the men of Israel. Now, the women didn't always go with them, but the men always went down um, for all three feasts. The Passover feast, which is the three spring feasts, then Pentecost, which is in the middle of summer, and then the three fall feasts, which we call the Feast of Unlev- or sorry, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, um, was in the fall. And there's three feasts right close together that are associated with that. So all three times the men of Israel were to collect in Jerusalem, and really they came from all over the place. It wasn't just from Israel itself, like um, Acts chapter 2 at the Pentecost, it kind of gives us an idea. So that was the Pentecost feast, that one. 
And um, we have all these um, people that went down for it. Acts 2, 9 to 11, I'm just going to quickly read to you. This is um, not even the biggest one. The biggest one um, is probably the fall feast. That was when, um, that was a huge one. The Passover one is also huge because of all the animals that were involved. So the Passover one I think of as the most personal one because there had to be a sacrifice for each family. And um, that was the lamb sacrifice, whereas the, the fall one was a little bit different. So the Passover one was a very personal feast. The Pentecost of the three was probably, um, like that was the one, it was celebrating the bringing in of the um, harvest and, and God's goodness to them. And, um, you know, was fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But listen to who came to that one. There were Parthians, those are from Iran, and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, like that's like Turkey, um, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts around Libya, Cyrene, um, Rome, all the way over to Italy, uh, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, like everybody came who was a Jew. They came from all over the known world to Jerusalem three times a year. Wow. And Mary and Joseph, being the kind of people they were, made sure that they did all the law. And I don't know if Mary went every time, but Joseph would have. And Jesus, as he became you know, a young boy and a man, would have also gone. But at this one, at this occasion, at the Feast of the Passover, the whole family is there, and um, Jesus is with them. Now, how they would do it, think about all these people coming to Jerusalem. Like they say that the, the Jews were the most traveled people of the world because they didn't stay in their own little town their whole life. They went down to Jerusalem all the time, and they were interacting with these people around the world. So, And if you lived in a different part of the world, you would still come to Jerusalem if it was all in your ability to do so. And so um, they would start, so they were up in Nazareth, which is up in the north areas, up in Galilee, and they would start down along, basically along the road along the Jordan River. And people would keep joining in, and they would travel as a caravan because of one of the uh, times they had to take the temple tax down. So that particular time, they would all have their half shekel in their pocket ready for the temple tax. So, you know, it was pretty lucrative to for robbers. And so they would travel in, for safety in caravans. And as they got closer and closer to Jerusalem, these caravans would get bigger and bigger. So by the time they're in uh, Jerusalem, they would have been, you know, pretty big caravans that would arrive there. And so they would travel in numbers. So, um, and they would come down and they would do their feast and it says that they were there the full number of days, which would be eight days for, they would start with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and it would um, work its way, you know, Passover and the whole Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is an additional seven days. So eight days in total, they would be there and then they headed back. Well, eight days anywhere with a bunch of kids, you start to lose track of them all. It's sort of like summer camp. Who knows where they are? And um, so you regroup and you go and you know, okay, kids, we're leaving tomorrow morning. Make sure you're in the caravan because we're heading out. And so the caravan, likewise, is big at the beginning, and then it gets smaller and smaller as they get closer to home. And so I think that's why Mary and Joseph didn't notice that Jesus wasn't with them because it's large. He's 12. Have you ever had a teenage boy and said, you have to stay with the, all of us, all those little kids? 
<laughs> no, I don't think so. And so, you know, you're kind of used to your teenage boy having a little bit more freedom and being able to move around. It's a safe group. It's, we're all family, so, you know, he'll be fine. And so they didn't really worry about him. But when they, you know, starting to thin out and the first night you kind of settle down and you're all around your own uh, cook fire, and where's, excuse me, where's Jesus? He's not here. And so they have to go looking for him. And um, they, you know, search all around the caravan, all the different people. Maybe he's visiting here or at that fire or whatever. He's nowhere to be found. And so Mary and Joseph are in a panic. And they think, ah, something's happened. We better go back to Jerusalem. We'll see first if he's there. Now, think about what that would be like for them as parents, realizing, ah, we have been entrusted with the Son of God, and we lost him. (laughs) And on top of that, they've already had an incident where the angel told them, you've got to get to Egypt, because Herod is going to kill that baby if you don't get to Egypt. And so they, in the middle of the night, fled to Egypt. And they stayed there until the angel said, Herod's dead, you can come back. So they already know that the evil one is out to kill their boy. And they've ma- and there's probably been other kinds of incidents where they you know, afterwards went, oh, that was a bit of a close call. Because Satan, it says in Revelation, it reveals to us what it was like. It says that he was like a dragon coming after Mary and that boy child. And he wanted them dead. And we see that in the picture of Herod, but it's not like that's the only time Satan tried to kill him. That probably was like his entire life was like that. And so now here are Mary and Joseph, and they have um, looked all over the caravan. They cannot find Jesus, and they're just hoping in the back of their mind that he just got distracted and he's at the marketplace or something still in Jerusalem, and we'll head back down to Jerusalem and look for him. And just hoping that he hasn't been captured or taken away or worse, killed. And so they head back. And you can imagine what that day's journey going back was like. If you've ever lost a child and, uh, like, forgotten them in music lessons or something, I mean, not that that's ever happened to me, but, (laughs) you know, the panic that you have, that, oh, you know, I I have this responsibility and I haven't done it. And so um, they go down and they go to Jerusalem and they go to the marketplace and they go here and they go where they were staying. They cannot find him. And Jerusalem is still pretty crowded and people are going the other direction. And so there's all this, you know, uproar as people are packing things up and they're looking for their child and people don't really care. You know, yeah, yeah, whatever, you'll find them. And so they're searching everywhere. For three days they look for him. I can't imagine what was going through their mind for three days as they look for their child and cannot find him. And the other kids are saying, let's just go home. We don't care. We've got, you know, three other brothers. We don't need them. So, you know, kids are like... So they're looking and looking and looking, and they cannot find him. And finally, they go to the temple. And there he is, just sitting with the elders, and um, they're asking questions back and forth. He's asking questions, and really, it's not sort of like, um, you know, asking questions, I don't know this. It's asking, 
insightful kinds of questions because they were astonished at the kinds of questions that he asked. And it showed great insight. And the Hebrew way of learning is... Um, they would all learn under rabbis if they were you know, so blessed to have a rabbi teaching them. And the rabbi would teach them how to ask good questions, sort of like inductive Bible study. Funny, that. And uh, they would learn how to ask good questions. And the question would reflect their deeper knowledge, their deeper understanding of what they're learning. And so that's what, it was, that's what was happening. And so when they came to, you know, this courtyard where the, he was talking to these elders, Jesus, he's here! And they run to him. And you know how it is, the relief is immediately changed with anger. <laughs> where were you? Why weren't you here? And that's what Mary does. She says, son, why did you treat us this way? Like, what's the matter with you? You must know that we were worried out of our minds for you. And Jesus just looks at them. And now it's been four days since he's seen them. And maybe it's finally dawning on him. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen you for four days. Well, um, he says to them, didn't you know I'd be here? I had to be here in my father's house. I love that answer. It's like, why didn't you come here and look first? Like, why did you look all these other places? Obviously, this is where I would be. So this is where you should have come to first. And he said, I had to be here. I love that. Like, where else would I be? This is the most important thing to me. It would be obvious that this is where I would be. I had to be here, and I love the second part, in my father's house. And he uses the word Abba, which was new for them. That is not really an Old Testament understanding of who God is. It is occasionally in the Old Testament, but it's more um, in reference to a prophecy. And it's really Jesus who taught us when they said, how do we pray? When the disciples said this later, he said, this is how you pray. Our Father. That's what we started with this morning. Our Father. This is something new since Jesus came. And he says, I'm in my Father's house. He says this to Joseph, who up till then really has been considered to be Jesus' father. And he says, I've been in my father's house. Or um, literally, it means in the things of my father. In other words, I'm, I'm in the middle of the things of my father. So I think of that as, um, you know, Jesus was preparing his whole life. I, I love that one thing we did Christmas Eve, I think it was, when it said that... Um, he was born to die so that we who were going to die could be born. And um, so his whole life was really going to be about his death, his physical death on the cross. And so um, that was, and we know from the story of the Garden of the Gethsemane, what a huge battle that was going to be for Jesus. And so as he's going to face that battle, his whole life is heading in that direction. That's the goal of his life, is to die as a sacrifice for the sins for the entire world. And he needed to be prepared. He needed to know the word of God. How was he going to know this? Jesus was not born with all this knowledge. He put it aside. He's still God but he put aside so much and he humbled himself 
in order to also learn him who's coming as a sacrifice. So as he's understanding the word, somewhere it would have clicked through the teaching of the Holy Spirit, because it says the Holy Spirit rested on him. He, I mean, he is God. And the Holy Spirit was in him and teaching him. And he's learning, ah, this is how it unfolds. This is the plan. And he's in readiness. And he's getting prepared. Do you know that our day of death is coming someday too now ours is not like jesus it's not i'm not trying to say that you know we're going to lay down our life as a sacrifice but our death day comes as well for all of us there's none of us who are going to escape that unless the lord returns first so what is our preparation for for the etern- for us for eternity beyond this life does matter it truly does and how we prepare matters how we f- face all these different circumstances that come it actually does matter and there's time that's given not every day is a tragic day for us there's lots of quiet days there's lots of peaceful days there's lots of sort of normal days that happen and those are days of preparation those are our days to be prepared for something We don't know what because we don't know our future, but whatever God puts on our pathway, be it, you know, a a small stone in front of us or a huge wall that we've got to scale, we all need to be prepared and we all can be prepared. It is possible to be ready for any circumstance. It doesn't mean that we've got all our ducks in a row in terms of our finances or circumstantial kinds of stuff. What it means is that we have a readiness in our soul, in our spirit. And we are ready for what God is going to unfold for us. And so we have these days of preparation. You have days of preparation. What are you going to do with them? What are the goals that you're setting for yourself this year that feed into preparation? And so Jesus was prepared. And his, it says in the scripture that he set his face like flint toward the cross. And nothing could deter him from it. Wow. Have you set your face like flint for the cross? To pick up your daily cross? To walk for the Lord? To live for the Lord and to die for the Lord? And nothing will deter you from that? No circumstances? No friend? No other voices? Not laziness? not distraction, none of those things, that you are just determined that this is what you're doing. And nothing is going to dissuade you from following after the Lord. And so um, we may be uncertain about all kinds of things. We might be uncertain about our purpose in life. You know, why did the Lord create me? What's my purpose? It's here. This is where Jesus learned his purpose And it's where we will learn our purpose. It is found in his scripture as his Holy Spirit reveals it to us in particular. And so to have that daily practice of being in his word. And um, I just want to end with a couple of verses that really um, puts into focus how Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
How did he go about doing it? What were some of the verses that he would have looked at, and what are some of the verses that he's subsequently given to us? So um, these are some of the verses that I just wanted to look at. I'm just going to take a minute to read them. Um, Proverbs. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And it tells us about what wisdom is. Um, I think we already know it. Uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. In other words, it's fools who don't fear the Lord. Um, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then also in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 15, it says, um, The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So we seek it. It's something that we have to dig for. We have to look for. It doesn't just sort of sit there waiting for us to pick it up. We actually have to do some seeking and some digging in um, his word and, and pondering on his word. And then subsequently, Jesus gave us more words, this time through the Apostle Paul. Um, Colossians 2, verses 2 to 3 um, Paul is praying that there, these are people he hasn't met, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining, and this is really his prayer for us, to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge, like that walking out knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in Philippians, um, verses, verse one, chapter 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the promise. He's with us. He's going to perfect it. He's going to bring it to completion. So I hope that um, it inspires us to be in the word, to be prepared, to be... Um, Growing in wisdom, which means that we're learning truth and the Holy, through the Holy Spirit and applying it to our lives and walking it out. That that would be what this year ahead holds for us, just like it, we had that glimpse into Jesus' life. So I'm just going to ask you um, to stand, and um, I'm going to read to you from Jude. Lord, we thank you for your good word to us that you always, always... Um, teach and instruct us through the power of your word that you have told us all that we need for um, our lives for godliness and for uh, growing in knowledge and we pray that we would put that into practice and so we thank you lord for our time together and ask that you be with us in this year ahead now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It is our desire to direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all life, hope, and true transformation. All are welcome. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.